Hi, everyone. The reading from today is from Mark uh, chapter 2 to chapter 3, verses 12. If you would open your Bibles with me, that'd be awesome. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him, uh, get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Once again, Jesus went outside beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, um, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will, take, take, will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they picked up some. They began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, "Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath?" He answered, "Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and, and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions." Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? 
to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill. But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus withdrew from his disciples to the lake and a large large crowd followed from Galilee. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Well, it's good to see you all. But they say it's 2022 right now. Is that right? 2022? You agree with that? Man, I don't know. Time to me seems to have flown by. But in the two years since I've been speaking with you from a distance here online, there's been one thing that sadly hasn't changed. Can anyone think of what that thing is? Any ideas? The last two years has been characterised by... the word we don't want to say, isn't it? COVID. COVID COVID-19. Is everyone sick of that word yet? I imagine every one of us has been wondering, when, oh, when is all of this going to end? How long is this pandemic going to last for? When will things return to the good old days pre-pandemic. Now, I can understand that kind of thinking. I have the same thoughts myself. But in some ways, longing for a return back to the days before the pandemic came along is looking in the wrong direction. Like pre-COVID, sure, Those days then were better than these days now, but were those days really all that wonderful? We look back fondly to the days pre-pandemic, but back then, did you know that the death rate here in Australia was actually higher back then than it is now? The number of people dying each year from flu and pneumonia and other respiratory diseases has actually decreased dramatically following the rise of COVID. With the lockdowns that have been happening, there's also been less people travelling, so less people have died from traffic accidents. And strangely, at least in 2020, even the rate of death from suicide decreased. It was 6% lower than the previous year. During the lockdowns across the world, there's also been an improvement in the natural environment in many places. Less transport means less pollution. 
which leads to a cleaner environment. So do we really want to go back to a world like that? A world in which pollution levels were high and where people were still getting sick or injured and dying? It doesn't make sense to look back at the days pre-COVID with rose-coloured glasses and to ignore the problems that existed back then. All that has happened with COVID is that it simply highlighted just how fragile life really is, just how little we're actually in control of things. But the solution to that isn't to look back. The solution is actually to look forward, to look forward to the coming of the kingdom of God. This is the perspective that the gospel of Mark encourages us to take. With the coming of Jesus, the exciting news is the God-appointed king of the world has finally arrived, bringing in the new age of the kingdom of God, which is a time of forgiveness, healing, and celebration. The section of text that we're looking at today, from Mark chapter 2, verse 1, through to chapter 3, verse 12, tells us that Jesus is the king who is bringing in the kingdom. And it also records for us how the Jewish authorities were opposed to Jesus despite the large crowds of people who were amazed and excited by Jesus's miraculous powers. And overall, there are six episodes that occur in this section of Mark's gospel. Each episode, as is typical of the gospels, generally presents one or two key ideas. And these are generally found at the end of each episode. So our plan today is to skim through each of these episodes and to build up a composite picture of Jesus and his ministry. So the first episode in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, recounts for us Jesus' healing of a paralysed man. This was a man who couldn't walk, but he was brought to Jesus by four of his friends. Remember how there was such a large crowd of people gathered there at Jesus' home in Capernaum on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee that the four friends ended up carrying their paralyzed friend up onto the roof of the house and then digging through the earthen roof to let their friend down into the house where Jesus was. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, child, your sins are forgiven. It's a wonderful story of faith and forgiveness. But notice how some Jewish scribes were there and they were unhappy. As specialists in the Jewish scriptures and the law of Moses, these guys took Jesus' declaration of forgiveness for the paralyzed man as equating to blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. How can this Jesus fellow say 
your sins are forgiven. Jesus challenged this view by presenting to the scribes a kind of riddle. What is easier, to say to the paralysed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and carry your mat and walk? Now, what do you think? Which one is easier to say, do you think? Well, the thing is, neither of the two is particularly easy to say. But saying your sins are forgiven is something that is kind of unprovable in this world, at least before the arrival of the day of judgment. But giving an order for a paralysed person to get up and start walking, that is immediately falsifiable. Once the command is given, the paralysed person will either get up and walk or he won't. So Jesus, in order to prove that he has authority as the Son of Man, talked about in Daniel 7, to forgive human sin, Jesus chooses to utter the falsifiably more difficult sentence. Get up, carry your mat and go home. And immediately the paralysed man picks up his mat and walks out. The people who saw this were amazed and praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. Friends, this episode proves that Jesus is the son of man of Daniel 7, the God-appointed king of the world who has authority to forgive human sin on the basis of faith. The second episode in chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, records the story of Jesus' calling of the tax collector Levi. Levi welcomed Jesus into his house and organised a dinner to which he invited many of his tax collector friends and other people who were looked down upon by the Pharisees, the popular religious leaders of the day. Now, the Pharisees rightly wanted people to follow the law of Moses, but there was a lack of love and compassion in their critique of others. And so they viewed the tax collectors and others like those as sinners. And they thought that Jesus shouldn't associate with people like that. But Jesus responded, the healthy don't have need of a doctor, but those who are unhealthy. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Friends, here we see that Jesus has come into the world in order to bring restoration to sinners. The third episode in verses 18 to 22, records Jesus' response to the question that was asked about why his disciples didn't fast like the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees did. Jesus pictures himself as a bridegroom surrounded by wedding guests. With the bridegroom present, 
It's a time for celebration, which implies eating and drinking. It's not a time for austerity and fasting. Just like a new piece of unshrunk cloth cannot be used to patch up an old garment without making the tear worse, or like how new wine cannot be stored in old wineskins without the carbon dioxide gas from the fermentation process bursting the old, weaker wineskins. Just like that, the new age of the kingdom of God is different from the old age of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. You see, Jesus is ushering in a new age, a time of celebration and joy. Now, finishing off chapter 2 from verse 23 onwards, we have the fourth episode, which records the incident that arose when Jesus' disciples walked through a field of grain on the Sabbath and plucked some of the grain to eat. The Pharisees saw what happened and questioned Jesus. Look, why are they doing on the Sabbath what's not allowed? You see, harvesting grain and preparing it as food was considered to be work. And according to the law of Moses, work was not permitted on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees here were accusing Jesus' disciples of breaking the Sabbath. Jesus responded by teaching that the purpose of the law of the Sabbath was to benefit humanity, not to harm humanity by keeping people needy or hungry. Jesus recounted the story of King David back in 1 Samuel chapter 21, who, when he was on the run from Saul, he asked the high priest at Nob for some food for himself and his men. The only food available at the time was the consecrated bread that was placed on the table inside the tabernacle. It was holy food that only the priests could eat. But in a time of need, it was given to David and his men so that they could receive necessary sustenance. Jesus understood that sometimes a ceremonial rule could be broken for the benefit of people in need. Friends, this episode proves in the words of Jesus himself how the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus understood that he is the fulfillment of the Son of Man prophecy of Daniel 7. He was the God-appointed King of the world who had authority to interpret the Scriptures and the law of God and to give the authoritative interpretation. The fifth episode brings us to chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. In this episode, we see the Pharisees, in a sense, lying in wait for Jesus inside a synagogue on the Sabbath. They know that a man with a withered hand is present, and they want to see whether Jesus will heal him. If he does, that will equate to work in their thinking, meaning that Jesus will have broken the commandment about the Sabbath. Now, Jesus knew their intentions. 
Notice how he asked the man with the withered hand to stand in the middle where everyone could see him. Then Jesus challenges the Pharisees with a question. Is it permissible on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? The Pharisees were silent because they knew the proper answer. The hardness of their hearts made Jesus feel angry and sad. Where was their compassion? Where was their understanding that the Sabbath was meant to symbolize freedom from all forms of slavery and oppression? But when Jesus healed the man's hand, do we see the Pharisees praising God like the people did early on when they saw Jesus healing people? No. Instead, we see them discussing with the Herodians, those who wanted a king from the line of Herod to rule over Judea. We see them trying to come up with a plan to destroy Jesus. The Pharisees and the Herodians were not natural allies, but here we see them joining together to oppose a common enemy, Jesus. Sadly, these power brokers were not willing to hand over power to the king of the incoming kingdom. In verses 7 to 12, our final episode today, notice the contrast with how popular Jesus was among the ordinary people. From all around Judea and Galilee and even further afield in Jordan and even Tyre and Sidon, up to 200 kilometres from Jerusalem, a great multitude of people had heard about Jesus' miracles and come to see for themselves. In fact, there were so many people that Jesus was concerned that he might be crushed in the crowd. Not only did he heal the sick, but he cast out the unclean spirits who immediately recognized who he was. Falling down before him, they cried out, you are the son of God. Now the concept of the son of God is derived from Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 indicates that the son of God is basically the Davidic king chosen by God to rule the nations of the world. The unclean spirits obviously knew this idea about the Son of God from Psalm 2, but here we see them freaking out with good cause upon meeting this Son of God. Well, those are the six episodes of this section of text, but overall, what does this section of Mark's Gospel tell us about Jesus and his ministry? Well, the composite picture that we get when merging these six episodes together is something like as follows. Jesus is the son of man of Daniel 7, the son of God of Psalm 2, the God-appointed king of the world, in other words, who is bringing in a new age of forgiveness, healing, and celebration. 
He's come to call sinners into the kingdom of God, but will be opposed by the rulers of this world. Friends, we need to realize here that the only thing that will bring lasting forgiveness and freedom is the kingdom of God and the king of that kingdom. Instead of looking back to better days or deluding ourselves into thinking that we can save ourselves, the gospel of Mark points to Jesus as the king who ushers in a new age and a new kingdom in which true forgiveness and healing can be experienced. It's a kingdom characterized by celebration rather than sadness. In reality, the kingdom of God is the only thing that can change our lives and save the planet. And the king of that kingdom is? Well, hopefully you know the answer. Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that today we've been able to look at six episodes from the Gospel of Mark, and there are a lot of things in there. But we thank you for the way in which they paint a composite picture of who Jesus is. He's the Son of Man fulfilling the prophecy of Daniel 7, the Son of God fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 2. In other words, Jesus is the God-appointed king who has been sent into the world to usher in the new age of the kingdom of God, the new age in which forgiveness and healing and celebration rule. Lord God, in the midst of a chaotic world, We often try to think, what can we do to either save ourselves or save the planet? Even in relation to global climate change, even people talk about, oh, we need to save the planet. As if we humans can do that, really. And now with COVID around, Yeah, we think that maybe somehow through our own scientific knowledge, somehow we can deal with that. But, Lord, we've seen the results of that. And things are still a mess. Not to mention things like earthquakes and volcanic explosions and global instability politically and the threat of war. Lord, when we look out, at the world, we need to be honest. Things are a mess. But you point us to Jesus as the king of the kingdom of God, as the solution to the problems of this world. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to look forward to the kingdom of God, to make sure that we're listening to the king of that kingdom, submitting to his rule and seeking to do what we can to extend that kingdom throughout the world. Thank you for the newness of the kingdom of God and for Jesus, 
the king of that kingdom. In whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, so now it's time for Q&A. Um, so we'll get someone to bring it up on the screen. All right, well, let's start from the top, Steve. You there? Yep. Can you hear me all right? Yep, yep, beautiful. All right, uh, first question. Um, what does the Son of Man mean? How is it different to the phrase Son of God? Yeah, I think generally in the way we think of things, we probably think Son of God means, oh, that's Jesus in terms of his divine nature and Son of Man, that is Jesus in terms of his human nature. To me, that's not actually how the terms the Son of Man and the Son of God are used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, perhaps there's some similarity there with how those terms are used in John's gospel. When John speaks of Jesus as the Son of God, I think he does have in mind the pre-existence of Jesus as the Logos in heaven before coming into the world. Okay, so when we typically think of Son of Man, Son of God in that way, we're probably thinking more in terms of how those terms are used in the Gospel of John, say. There's, there's more similarity there. But in terms of Matthew, Mark and Luke, and here we're dealing with Mark's Gospel, then these terms actually go back to key passages in the Old Testament, like I mentioned in the sermon. So Son of Man, in order to understand that, you need to realise that's actually picking up the prophecy about the Son of Man, and Son of Man in Hebrew just means like a human being. And you've got to go back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And they talk about someone who's a Son of Man, in other words, a human being who is invited up into heaven on the clouds to enter into the presence of the Ancient of Days, and then he receives authority to be king over the peoples, basically and to be a king of an eternal kingdom. So when Jesus is talking about himself as the son of man, and this is something that he characteristically does, when he refers to himself, he often doesn't say I, but he'll talk about himself in the third person really as the son of man. He's picking up this prophecy that exists in Daniel 7. So the prophecy in Daniel 7 is really talking about a human being who's invited into the presence of God to receive authority to rule the peoples of the world. Okay. Well, what about the Son of God? Well, that comes in in Psalm 2. And it's a very similar picture, really. In Psalm 2, it's really this idea of a Messiah. So, in other words, someone of the line of David, who's a king and who is enthroned as king in Jerusalem. And through that enthronement, he is then acknowledged by God as being the son of God. So it's kind of enthronement language, really. The son of God at that point is the king chosen by God to be seated in Jerusalem, but also then he's given authority to rule the nations with an iron scepter. So when you compare the Son of Man prophecy in Daniel 7 and the Son of God prophecy in Psalm 2, they're quite similar, really. They're really talking about the same thing. This human being who is made king by God and given authority to rule the nations. And I think that's what is being picked up in Mark's gospel here. And when the 
demons were confessing that Jesus is the son of God. They probably had this idea, I think, of the son of God idea from Psalm 2. So in other words, Jesus is the new Davidic king who has authority over the world, including over the demonic domain as well. And so the idea is when Jesus comes into the world, he's now going to deal with all of the forces of Satan and to dispel all of the darkness and bring in the reality of God's rule into the world. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, hopefully that clarifies it for the person who asked the question. Um, all right, uh, next question. So why do the demons know who Jesus is? Well, they have particular knowledge. And if we look in the Old Testament, we do see that even Satan was allowed to enter into the, the kind of meetings of the divine council, if you want to put it that way. And so Satan has some idea. He's got some knowledge of what's happening. I think he really knows what God's plans are. And I think the demons who have followed him, they have that knowledge as well. So it's an insight, I guess, into God's purposes and plans. And you'd think that knowing that, that, that they would surrender. You know, that's the only thing that really makes sense, that they would surrender. But uh, the kind of insanity of it really is that really I think Satan really knows. He's trying his best to, to win, but I, I think deep down he probably knows that he can't. So he's just wanting to create as much chaos and havoc as he can before the final end of things. And, and as part of that plan, they know that God in creating a physical world was going to enter into this world in physical form in the person of the son of man, son of God. And finally he's come and it's natural at that point for the demons to freak out because they realize at this point, look, thing, this is the end really. This is the end. We've had our time, but the king has now come. And they're rendered powerless, really, from that point on. Yeah, there's not really much they can do. Mm. Um, and it seems like it's going to be our final question. So how come Jesus can break some Old Testament laws like the Sabbath? I would say at that point, from Jesus' way of thinking, he's not breaking the Sabbath right? Because the Sabbath law was, as Jesus says, made ultimately for the benefit of humanity. So we work for a period of time, but then have a day of rest. And during that day of rest, it was meant to be how the Israelites, they would remember back to how God created the world. They'd remember too how God had saved them from Egypt they'd remember the importance of freedom and liberation, okay? So one of the things that we see Jesus doing in particular is a lot of the healings that are reported in the Gospels, he actually almost deliberately heals on the Sabbath. And why is he doing that? I think he's doing that because he realises the Sabbath day symbolises freedom. And that's freedom not just from sin but also freedom from all sorts of oppressions, including physical oppression in the form of disease and sickness. And so Jesus sees the Sabbath as a day which is totally appropriate for people to be set free from sickness and disease. 
And likewise, in relation to eating of the grain and so on, I think at that point, Jesus is thinking, well, the Sabbath is a day of freedom where we're supposed to be enjoying the good things that God has given us. And so the disciples just walking through a field like that, they're not doing their everyday work in just doing what they were doing at that point, right? They're just a little bit hungry, and so there's food there that God has provided. They're just taking it and eating it, really. So from Jesus' point of view, I don't think that he would have viewed that as a breaking of the Sabbath. And so I don't think that, um, you know, we can say that he, in terms of this question, that he feels that he can break the laws. No, he thinks that he, as the son of man, he is the one who knows the will of God and the plan of God and the word of God and who has the authority to be able to teach the word of God and interpret God's word properly. And this was actually a, a Jewish tradition that some people thought that when the Messiah comes, there's either going to be a new law or the proper interpretation of the law. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing here. He does a similar thing on the uh, Sermon on the Mount. You've got your traditional Jewish teachings, but then Jesus comes and say, no, it's like this. This is really what the word of God means at this point. So it's true that longer term, some of the laws of the law of Moses, particularly the ceremonial laws, we as Christians don't follow these today, but that's because there's been this transformation as a result of Jesus coming from the old covenant to the new. But in terms of Jesus, he fulfilled the law. He didn't break it. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Thanks for your time, Reverend Steve. Uh, That's okay. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries.